Welcome back to the podcast of the River Anglican Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. Today, Deacon Jack McDonald talks about right belief by talking about heretics. So here's Jack. Good morning, everyone. Great to see, see you all on this chilly, uh, chilly January morning, and great to see the Belize team back, back with us. Uh, thanks for serving the Lord overseas. Uh, my name is Jack McDonald. I'm one of the deacons here at the River, and before I begin this morning's message, let me remind you where we're headed as a church body in terms of our preaching. On January 22nd, we'll begin a new weekly uh, sermon series entitled Ask or Imagine, and this series is going to teach, inspire, it'll encourage us, and also challenge us regarding our attitudes and practices um, of financial stewardship. It'll also help explain the biblical basis for our upcoming River Imagine Capital Campaign. We encourage all of you who call the river your church home to attend or to watch online for all five of these uh, messages if you're able. It will be one of the most important goals we'll try to accomplish this year in 2023. Well, last week we heard Chris Meckley preach a great message on epiphany and the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles. And now we find ourselves on the second Sunday of Epiphany and uh, a sermon that is uh, going to follow with our new sermon series, such that this is essentially a standalone message. And as I prayed about our topic, I felt called to help us all begin the new year with our feet firmly on the ground and the rock of Christian orthodoxy, and thus to address a concept found in this Nicene Creed that we all just recited together. It's not a novel topic, but it's an important one. What does it really mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God? We're going to talk about the clear meaning from the Bible, but also what challenges there are to that meaning that have emerged over time, even from within the church. We'll close by asking, what are the implications of how we answer that question, what do we mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, since we're talking about a core doctrine that's part of the Nicene Creed, I wonder if any of you have ever thought much about the logic of the order of Anglican worship in which the Nicene Creed, just as we did this morning, is typically recited prior to the sermon. There is a reason. Simply put, it's to protect the congregation. It's to ensure that core biblical Christian truths are what are preached from the pulpit. Even though the creeds are not the final authority and they're not uh, scripture themselves, they do help summarize our key beliefs that we believe the Bible teaches, such that if you were to preach otherwise, you'd be varying in the heresy. Saying the creed just before the sermon lays down some tracks. First, for you and the congregation to judge if the preaching that you're about to hear is staying within scriptural boundaries. And then it serves as a warning to me and others as preachers that will be judged by the weight of the stated biblical doctrines. Ensuring that the sermon can stand the full test of the biblical canon is pretty important stuff. And with that, with that in mind, let's pray right now that this message will indeed follow that guideline. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all our hearts this morning be acceptable to you in your sight. For you are our rock and our amazing and gracious redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, I want to share with you a picture taken <clears throat> last Sunday as I was eating breakfast before church. This is our cat, Crockett. Now, he also has earned the name of Chunker, 
uh, if you'll notice a little uh, bulk there in the center, uh, uh, and uh, Chunker has a bit of a uh, resemblance to Garfield, as you might see. Now, one of the common behaviors of Chunker the cat in our home is that whenever you're eating, whether it's a formal meal or a snack and you're watching a game on TV, he will gradually come over and he will pretend that he just wants to be near you. And then very slowly and surely, he will creep up onto the meal in question, and he'll attempt to get a bite, just like a tiger or a lion would apply stealth to approach its prey. Now, in this picture, you can see he's feigning friendship. He's placing his cute little chin on my arm. But you can tell by the look of his eyes that the real purpose is to get that... (laughs) that milk in my cereal bowl. I was just I was just getting ready to come to the river, and, and I looked over there, and I saw him, and so I grabbed my camera, and I said, i got to get a picture of this. And I was wondering how I would start the message, and so Chunker gave me the opportunity. But of course, your first challenge this morning is, as a listener of the sermon is to determine, well, how on earth am I going to make a transition from Chunker the cat <laughs> to the topic of what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Hang in there. I think I can pull it off and that you can pull it off as well. You see, the cat, as it very gradually approaches the target, such that you get acclimated to his presence, and you don't notice the imminent danger to your cereal, the same applies to how our culture approaches these very same doctrines which we recited this morning. And yet it does so in such a way as to twist and to eventually water them down so that they become unoffensive, but also in such a way that they become meaningless and far from the biblical standard. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God? Firstly, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God rather than a Son of God, meaning that He's unique, a one and only. Yes, there are many references in the Bible to us and others being children of God, and that's 100% biblical. In fact, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will become children of God. But... What this is saying is that we're part of God's family. It's not what Scripture is not saying, um, and thus what the creed is getting at, is that Jesus is the Son of God. And let's remind ourselves of the text that help us out here. So the Nicene Creed in summarizing Scripture states that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. The word begotten can be thought of as sort of emanating directly out of the substance of God. And that word, one substance, is very important. Well, the first challenge to this position comes from what we would call modern-day Arianism. Now, Arianism was a 4th century heresy, which simply put... um, stated that Jesus was an honored Son of God, but He was not the second person of the Holy and Undivided Trinity. He was instead, only like as a Son is subordinate to His Father, He was also subordinated to God the Father as a created being. Kind of a demigod, you might think, or maybe like a really awesome angel, um, a special angel to God the Father. That is, Jesus was not co-eternal with God the Father, but was created. Sort of a classic phrase to summarize Arianism is this phrase that there was a time when Jesus was not. 
Well, in ascribing to Jesus this honored but lower status, he was described as being in the likeness of God. And the Greek word used for likeness is homoiousian in Greek. Rather than the same substance of God, homoousian. So the two words look very similar. In fact, the only difference is that I in the middle and homoousian. So one little letter uh, differentiates these two Greek words. But they are miles apart in meaning. Today, the same seemingly subtle but enormously important distinction is alive and well today in society and in our churches. That is, many will ascribe a sonship to Jesus, but not the deity that we mean when we say the Son of God. Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses are just two of the more obvious Aryans of of today. And just like the Aryans of old, they believe that Jesus was a created being. Among other Christological heresies debated by the early church was another one very closely related to the term of Son of God, and that was a belief known as adoptionism, which held that Jesus was adopted by God based on his accomplishments. Therefore, in this case, the Son of God would not mean the eternal preexistence of Jesus equal with God, but instead a man adopted as the Son of God during his life. In this view, Jesus was a created human, but one who somehow managed to live a sinless life and was rewarded for it. After his earthly ministry, God resurrected Jesus and made him part of the Godhead as a reward for his human accomplishments, as the the, um, statement goes. Then he made him Lord of the church. Now, while this exact view in its entirety is not common today, aspects of it abound, including the belief that we're not saved by Jesus. I mean, how could we be if he was not God, right? But since as a human, just like us, he could obtain such perfection, so too can we, just like him, do the same. Christianity is thus converted into a a religion in which we just follow Jesus' example. Today, versions of Arianism and adoptionism creep into the mindset of those inside and outside the church, just like the cat chunker creeps over to your breakfast. These beliefs hold that Jesus' sonship stems from either being created by God at a point in time or earning that sonship as the best of all men. They do not ascribe to Jesus his being eternally begotten and being of the same nature, the same substance, the same essence, the homoousius of God. Catholic priest Dwight Longnecker wrote a really interesting article, and it's entitled The Ghost of Arianism in the Church Today. And I quote, This watered-down Christianity is our modern form of Arianism. The difference between Arius and the modern heretics is that Arius was actually explicit in his teaching. The modern heretics are not. They inhabit our seminaries, our monasteries, our rectories, our presbyteries. They infest the true church like some hideous parasite. Many of them don't even know they're heretics because they've been poorly catechized. From the start, their beliefs about Jesus Christ have remained fuzzy and out of focus. They feel totally at ease reciting the Nicene Creed every week, using all the words of traditional Nicene Christianity, while reinterpreting those words in a way that would please Arius. So when they speak of Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, what they really mean is as follows, that in some beautiful way, He was such a perfect human being that He reveals to us what God is like. 
You know, I can remember hearing a discussion in my own church growing up, a, a liberal mainline church, and um, often what I would hear is the following, that evangelical Christians talk too much about Jesus. How about that? That evangelical Christians talk too much about Jesus and not enough about God. Wow. Well, the risk here is in this type of thinking is that the crucifixion is downgraded to just the tragic death of some young and courageous fighter for peace and justice. And the resurrection gets downgraded to no longer be an actual event, but simply means in some mysterious way, by following his teachings, the disciples of Jesus continued to believe that he was alive within their hearts and within history. In a similar manner to the adoptionist belief that Jesus was a man that became God's son only at the time of his baptism, many today hold that being a Christian is simply striving to be like Jesus, who was a man of such character that God adopted him, and maybe if they're good enough, God will adopt them too. Meanwhile, our creed and our Bible are crystal clear that Jesus is fully God, and he's always been fully God, and thus his sonship stems from eternity. Yes, Jesus was born a human son, but He was not created in Mary's womb, and he did not eventually become the Son of God by adoption, by earning some stars, you know, uh, by being such a good human. The Bible does not reveal Jesus as a second tier of the Godhead and not as a subordinate receiver of the Father's commission. Yes, there is clearly a loving submission within the Trinity, especially regarding the role of Jesus in his incarnation. But that does not imply any inequality of the persons in the Trinity. So what does the Bible say? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, and I'd like to read this amazing passage. Uh, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Wow. Another great passage that we read this morning. I'm going to read it again from Colossians chapter 1. It it helps us remind us that Jesus, as the Son of God, held a majestic and equally divine role within the Godhead in his pre-incarnated state, that in his incarnational ministry he retained that deity, and that he similarly holds a supremely divine role in his post-incarnation position. Again, Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him and for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities, All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Throughout the New Testament, the term Son of God denotes the concept of deity of Jesus and not some lesser concept of sonship. The writers of the gospel, using the term Son of God for Jesus, simultaneously equated that term with the Messiah. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And then John 20, but these are written that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you have will have life in his name. In a similar fashion, those who did not believe in Jesus' deity during his earthly ministry uh, nevertheless clearly understood what Jesus was saying and they, that he had accepted the title of Son of God, and in doing so, that meant he was claiming to be God. In John 19.7, the Jewish leaders are insisting the following, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And not only in the Gospels, but also in the epistles we read the term, Son of God, and that is pointing to the divinity of Jesus. John chapter, 1 John 5, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You know, doctrinal positions should never be developed from a single scripture but from the full counsel of God. And the deity of Jesus, as we're reading this morning, is not an idea pulled from a single source, but it's throughout the New Testament. But it's also mentioned in the Old Testament in the sense that when Jesus um, goes to his hometown and he's reading in Luke 4, um, he points out that this reference in Isaiah 41 is all about him. On the road to Emmaus, it's stated that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Throughout the four gospels, the claims and miracles of Jesus, not least his resurrection, are inseparable from the rest of his teachings and ministries. Just using the gospel of John as an example, one finds these numerous miraculous signs of Jesus and all these I am statements. They're intertwined with his life and ministry and teaching. Theologian Thomas Oden points out that Jesus was constantly remembered as saying outrageous things about himself, like, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, of course, from John 14, 6. So just for a moment, let's pause and ask, how do we, with, with all this in the background, how do we deal with a menacing chunker cat approaching upon our breakfast, that men menacing watering down of our faith? Well, tradition has it at the Council of Nicaea where our creed was developed, Bishop Nicholas, later to be known as St. Nicholas, boldly confronted Arius. So as this painting shows, uh, the tradition is that he actually slapped him. Well, there's other traditions that he even, um, even gave him a punch as well. This is my favorite slide here. Now... The truth is, we really don't have a, a clear historical record of this event. Uh, we think that, Saint, that Nicholas was at the council. We don't even have that for sure in the records. Um, but the tradition is, is one of confronting uh, you know, false doctrine, right? And that's what we, uh, that's what we gain from this tradition, I think. Um, in our gospel reading this morning, uh, so the, the point is, he confronted Arius with God's word, and uh, it's not punching. That's, that's the idea, I guess. I didn't want to have that be on record that uh, we're a punching church. Uh, <clears throat> we, um, we punch with the, using the word of God, right? It, okay. Everybody got that clear? Okay. Great. Yeah. We're a pacifist church, right? So, Okay. Um, you know, in our gospel reading this morning that Matthew uh, shared with us um, from John 5, we have a really powerfully spoken description uh, by Jesus himself 
as to who he is and what is his relationship to the Father. He includes in this passage not only that he is the Son of God, but also he says he's the Son of Man. So wait a minute, uh, where, where does that come from? And it's relevant to our topic uh, for just a moment to ask, are these two references contradictory? Does saying, that is, does saying that he's the Son of Man mean he's only claiming a human nature and not a divine one? Well, no, not at all. What he's doing is claiming both natures. Jesus was, after all, fully God and fully human. So whenever Jesus uses the term the Son of Man, and he does very often in the New Testament, it's always in a manner in which you, a manner in which you realize that he is the Messiah and also the Son of God, who's, who is incarnate at that moment. Just look at Matthew chapter 25, uh, 26, I'm sorry. Uh, the scene is Jesus is now held captive by the Sanhedrin, and he's being questioned uh, by the chief priest. The chief priest, the high priest says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replies, You have said so, but I say to you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. I mean, there's no mere mortal being referred to here when he talks about the Son of Man. So the Son of Man can be thought of as the Son of God clothed in flesh. And that is why in John 5, we have Jesus in the same passage using both terms, because they're both accurate. In each case, he is God, whether you're referring to him as the incarnate uh, Messiah or the pre-existing Son of God for all of eternity. They both hold true. You know, despite as we think about church history, despite all the schisms that we see in church history between the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church in 1054, and then later in the 16th century between the leaders of the Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church, this fundamental Christological position on the Son of God as found in the Nicene Creed has remained a commonly shared belief by all Christians and a key belief and yet at the same time, it is a commonly targeted belief that's been at risk of being watered down. So there's some important implications to our message today, to how we understand uh, what it means when we say Jesus is the Son of God. The first, a very exciting one, is that the work on the cross was efficacious. If Jesus was the Son of God, His work was clearly efficacious for atoning for our sin. You see, it was, was not a futile death of a nice man who died on the cross at Calvary or even the death of a special creation of God, but it was God himself, the perfect lamb who was slain and the only possible sacrifice which could be efficacious to satisfy the righteous judgment of God with respect to our sins. God, who is the righteous and perfect judge, demands perfect justice. And yet he himself provides the perfect payment and atones for our sin. You can say amen to that one right there. There we go. Um, you and I can trust that we have been redeemed by God himself. Meanwhile, as we follow his commands out of love and thankfulness, we refute the concept that we can only be accepted by God if we act just like Jesus and earn that adoption. While we do want to emulate Jesus' example, we can never be just like Jesus who is the Holy One. And we must be humble enough to recognize that so that our adoption is through grace by faith, resting on the work of Christ on our behalf. You know, these are just some of these core Christian teachings that get contaminated if we hold the wrong view as to what does it mean when we say Jesus is the Son of God. 
Another monumental idea for us to embrace is that if Jesus, as the Son of God, is God, then not only is our faith in Him an efficacious saving faith, but now we've come to appreciate how deeply must God love us in the world. He intentionally and proactively reached out to us by a path of humility and suffering and death. You know, John 3.16 is just so familiar to us that we're sometimes almost immune to the truth. But it is so awesome to think how much God must love us now, today, where we sit here, if He has carried out this work for us. Also, not only is the act of the Incarnation a demonstration of love, but the recorded life of Jesus in the Gospels shows us what God is like. What a gift. And that itself is part of the good news. If we wonder, what is God like? Well, we have the answer in the Gospels. God is revealed to us through Jesus. Again, what a gift. And finally, the great word you like to hear in every sermon, right? Uh, Finally, and perhaps most importantly, if Jesus was God, well, then he must still be God now. He's not a man who died 2,000 years ago and whose example we can follow. Scripture tells us that Jesus still lives today, continuing the reign as a part of the Godhead, and he serves as our resurrected great high priest who sits at the right hand of God because he is God. This is why you can invite Jesus into your heart today, because he lives and stands knocking at the door of our hearts to be our Savior and to be recognized as our Lord. Because he is the Son of God, we need to recognize and treat him as such. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at therivernrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 915 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.